welcome. You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. Friday morning, I was the only customer in a Subway restaurant looking forward to a quick process of ordering my breakfast bowl so I could get out of there and get over here. There was one employee, one customer, me, one breakfast bowl. Let's roll. The employee looked different than me. I'm guessing he was an immigrant. English was not his first language. He struggled to understand my order. The subway way was not his way. Fast and efficient had become slow and methodical. And I soon realized this process was not going to be quick. And as it dragged on, confession, all sorts of judgments and frustrations convened within me. I wasn't going to get out of here, get out of there and over here as fast as I wanted. And that was a horrific injustice against me because I deserved better. But right around the time this Malignant mass of ugly was filling my soul. A redemptive idea appeared, perhaps graciously whispered by God's Holy Spirit. It went something like this. What if this subway store was the whole of the universe, and this guy and I were the only people in the universe, and Jesus was reigning as the unhindered king in this garden of subway? How would our exchange unfold? How would my attitude be different? What would it look like if Jesus' politics were shaping the social context of this Subway restaurant? Now, if you weren't here last week, you might be wondering, what does Jesus' politics have to do with anything? Well, while you were out, we began a Linton series. It's on the screen called... Let the king descend, politics, and the way of Jesus. And we're stepping toward this, to use Renee's phrase, not to push anyone toward a certain uh, vote. Not to push anyone to vote a certain way. But over the next few weeks, we are stepping toward the anger and polarization of our nation's political climate and asking God to show us as one local church how to be his faithful presence in this political chaos. You might also be wondering, what does an encounter with a guy at a subway have to do with politics? And the answer is a lot. Because politics is far more than a presidential vote once every four years. Politics has to do with the governance of our social contexts, the values and the ethics that shape our communities and our common life together. It struck me while waiting for my breakfast bowl and as this kind of strange thought appeared that if Jesus's politics were operating in the garden of subway it would be a master class in Matthew chapter 22 love god with all that you are and love your neighbor as yourself 
my attitude and reactions would reflect love of God and love of my neighbor who was making my breakfast. We would want what was best for each other if Jesus was reigning unhindered in the universe of Starbucks. I would want to pay him a fair price for the breakfast bowl, and he would want to make it really well. I would want Jesus' patience as my neighbor struggled to understand my order. And as these strange thoughts filled my mind, the experience Friday morning in Subway, which had been trending in one direction, tangibly and suddenly changed because I started to see it through restored eyes. This is week two of our Lenten series. As you already know, we're talking about Jesus and politics. And I want to say right off the top, none of us or most of us are politically unbiased. Many of us, if not all of us, have a political ideology and theology that is probably hardened like concrete. And Jesus agrees with our politics, or so we think. We can prove it with Bible verses. So the task today, absurd as this is, but fun it could be, is for the next half hour or so, fire the political party you prefer, fire the presidential candidate you like, fire the presidential candidate you dislike, and let's allow Jesus the King and the way of his kingdom to shape our politics from the ground up. So let's roll. Our scripture reading is from John chapter 18. I'd ask you to stand for it. It's John 18 verses 28 through 40. And in my opinion, this is one of the most important, finest, most stunning passages on Jesus' politics in the entire Bible. This is one of the most interesting exchanges and encounters in the entire Bible because of the windows it opens into the way God sees the world. John chapter 18, verse 28. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked? Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied, your own people and chief priests? handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, Pilate said. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born 
and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him, but it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I want to jump right into this. Four statements about Jesus and politics. And the first is, his message was political. Jesus' message, obviously, had much to say to the individual about sin, grace, forgiveness, transformation, restoration. But here, he is going toe-to-toe with the Roman Empire. He's talking power and kingdom with a Roman governor named Pilate. So his message, his good news, had much to say about the social context of his day, and it had much to say to social problems like poverty and injustice. His message was political. He spoke to individuals about their soul. He spoke to the issues of society, about what would happen if his kingdom was allowed to reign there. Now, there are plenty of Christians, as you well know, who have a tendency to compartmentalize their politics away from their faith to avoid the inevitable mess that arises when these two forces collide. We talked a bit about this last week. I don't want the pulpit to talk about politics. My politics is over here. My faith is over here. This kind of a thing. But there's no way to separate politics from faith without diluting and distorting both. Remember, the basis of this entire series for Lent is that Jesus, the King, and His kingdom are the ultimate reality and the encircling frame of every story and situation in our lives, in society, and in the world. So, Jesus belongs at the center of our political convictions and engagement. For those who profess to trust Him and follow Him, Jesus Christ belongs at the center of our political convictions and political engagement. He is the one to whom we pledge our highest allegiance. But there are, as you probably know, relentless influences in the world, in the culture, in our lives, trying to push Jesus out of the center of our political convictions and engagement. And this is just my experience. This is my opinion. I don't want to impose this on you. You might disagree completely, and that would be perfectly acceptable. But for me, my middle to upper class context that I live in is one of those influences that tries to push Jesus out of the center of my political convictions and engagement. Now, to be clear, I like living here. Let me be even more clear. I like comfort. But I just have to face this. I, in 2024, have very little in common with 
most of those in Jesus's first audience. And I need to remember this. When he began his ministry, he said in Mark chapter 1 and verse 15, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. Throughout his life, he announced this message of the kingdom to all people, but it especially landed on those who were powerless, marginalized, poor, and oppressed. People who lived with their backs against the wall. The only power or rights they had were on loan from the Roman Empire that occupied Israel at the time of Jesus. When this first audience then heard the good news about the kingdom of God available now in and through Jesus, they were, as the Bible says, amazed, astonished, and in awe because now, for once, they were included in the haves. So Jesus' first audience immediately knew that his message and his example collided with the political, social, religious, and economic power brokers of the day. Most of our Bible was written to those who were on the outside looking in. Those who lived as exiles in another land or captives in their own land. So to feel, for us to feel the full political weight of Jesus' good news, we have to put on different sandals, or we probably have to put on different sandals and hear his words and see his work through the lenses of those who are powerless, marginalized, poor, and oppressed. So with that, I want to use our first time out today. I've given myself three of them. This will be the first. In the polarizing political climate of 2024, those four words I just mentioned, powerless, marginalized, poor, oppressed, are trigger words for some. Some people get defensive when they hear those words, which may be a sign and I think is a sign, we are letting the culture, and especially the media, dictate the terms of our political dialogue, instead of taking our cues from Jesus and from Scripture. So right now, in this moment, in this kind of uh, uncertain, maybe a little bit tense setting right here, as we talk about this, it's possible some of us are trending toward defensiveness right now. This topic has incredible power to do such things. And you know what? Feeling defensive is okay. It's actually good. It's especially good if we stay with it and we don't run off. So my encouragement is if we're feeling defensive... Let the anger rise a bit. Hold it before the Holy Spirit. And as we go through, invite Jesus to descend into our defensiveness. Back to the story. First century Jewish people had seen and heard messengers from Rome riding into their town and village announcing the following. I have good news for everyone. Our Savior and Lord, Emperor Nero, has conquered 
another enemy. Those words, good news, emperor, lord, savior, were used in that context. So the first century Jewish people had seen and heard those messengers, and they'd also heard their religious leaders talk and teach about a Messiah who would one day come and be their king. So there really is no question that Jesus' message about good news about the kingdom of God addressed individuals, but it was also a direct hit on Rome's political power and on Jerusalem's religious power. Secondly, Jesus confronted the misuse of power. Power is a crucial component in any conversation about Christianity and politics. For decades, maybe forever, Jesus has been hijacked by politicians and their political parties and enlisted as a sponsor of their agenda. So Jesus is to the Republicans and Democrats what Patrick Mahomes is to State Farm Insurance. I hate to bring up a sore spot in mentioning Patrick Mahomes, but I won't camp there. We'll move on. But basic ideas get Jesus on our side, and we have a better chance of beating the competition. It's a classic example of us dragging Jesus into our way of doing politics instead of us following Jesus into his way of doing politics. And his way is never a power grab. His way does not revolve around winning. John chapter 18, the verses we just read a moment ago, are profoundly instructive on Jesus and power and how these things relate and how his way, Jesus' way, the way of the kingdom is against the grain of Rome, Jerusalem, Washington, D.C., or wherever. So the Jewish leaders and the high priest Caiaphas take Jesus to the palace of the Roman governor whose name is Pontius Pilate. So here it all is, right in front of us. Religious and political power aligned together against Jesus because they could not get him to sponsor their agenda. Note the irony and the tragedy in all this. John chapter 18 and verse 28 says, To avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they, that is the religious leaders, did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. You know what this is? This is a prime example of a religious system that has lost Jesus on its way to gaining power. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is standing right in front of them, but their eyes can't see him and their ears can't hear him because their intoxication with power has deceived them. See, power has massive potential to corrupt even the most well-intended. And as followers of Jesus, political power should create fear and trembling within us. As followers of Jesus, we should not barge uncritically into grasping power and thinking it doesn't matter because it does matter. Political power should create fear and trembling within the, fo the follower of Christ. The religious leaders tell Pilate, at least they're straight up, we have no right to execute anyone. That's why we brought him to you. They think they're doing what is right. 
That's the deception of power. Here it is in the first century, right in front of our eyes. We can't miss this. Religious and political power aligned together to accomplish their agenda, and their agenda is to get rid of Jesus. Maybe I'll say that again. Religious and political power align together to accomplish their agenda, and their agenda is to get rid of Jesus. Pilate rules the region under the flag of Rome. He asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And here comes Jesus' familiar snark, frequently aimed at those in power. Uh, Is that your idea? Someone tell you that. Pilate then asks, well, what is it that you've done? And Jesus answered, and this is the key to Jesus' politics. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from another place. The reason I was born and came into the world was to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Jesus' kingdom renews and transforms the world, but it is not of the world. When Jesus is arrested, you may recall, Peter pulls a knife and he slices off the ear of the high priest's servant, and Jesus rebukes Peter and says, put your knife away. We don't do it that way. When Jesus is questioned by the religious leaders, one of the officials reaches over and slaps Jesus across the face, and Jesus responds with a non-anxious presence. When they hurled their insults at him, 1 Peter 2 says, he did not retaliate. His kingdom is not of this world. He doesn't do power the way we do power. And again, in the name of ironic tragedy, when Pilate, who wants to set Jesus free, puts these two candidates out in front of the crowd, Barabbas, who was a zealot, which means Barabbas' mission, he was a Jewish guy, his mission was to build an army, uh, a group that would take on the Romans using swords and whatever else they could find, and they would violently attack the Romans and ultimately kick them out of Rome. That was his approach, and Jesus' approach was that his kingdom was from another world, and Pilate says, which one do you want? And what does everybody scream? Give us Barabbas, the fighter, the guy who will kick out the Romans. He tells Pilate, Jesus does, everyone on the side of truth listens to me. I mean, what an audacious claim. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. So let's take our second time out. Who is our go-to political consultant? Who is your go-to political consultant? Where do we turn for guidance in our political choices and engagement? My guess is, though not true of all of us, my guess is that many of us rely on our favorite news source because that is where we will think we will find guidance for the real-world issue of politics. The Bible's nice for religious trinkets. Jesus is an expert at forgiving sins, but Fox or MSNBC or CNN or whatever, now that's where the political experts are. Dallas Willard writes these words. They're on the screen. Uh, Actually, 
worth taking a picture of if you're that type. He says, where we spontaneously look for, quote, information on how to live shows how we truly feel and who we really have confidence in. And nothing more forcibly demonstrates the extent to which we automatically assume the irrelevance of Jesus as teacher for our real lives. So we can be a follower of Jesus Christ who pays almost no attention to him when it comes to our politics. I'm not quite sure how that is. See, Jesus' remarkable words to Pontius Pilate will reshape our political theology if we let them. He says to Pilate words to this effect, I don't govern like you or like the religious leaders do. My kingdom is nothing like yours. If it was, here's what would happen. If my kingdom was like your kingdom, Pilate, my servants would use violence and power like you'd do, and I'd win in about four seconds. But I don't do things the way you do things. But, and this is just mind-bending, Jesus says, what I say, what I do, and how I do it is true. It reflects Reality, it is the way things actually are and are intended to be. And everyone who is interested in reality pays attention and listens to me. Who says these things? Everyone who's interested in reality pays attention and listens to me. Let me insert something that's smaller than reality, which means it's encompassed by reality. Everyone who is interested in reality about American politics pays attention and watches and listens to Jesus Christ. And Jesus never aligned with the religious or political systems of his day. In the words of theologian Scott McKnight, he was a peaceful dissident. Let's call him a peaceful disturber of the peace. Here's a sampling of his politics. Love God and love neighbor. Love your enemies. Pray for those who make your life miserable. Don't give anger a foothold. Give to the needy. Defend the cause of the helpless. Store up treasures in heaven. When you're insulted, don't retaliate. Heal the sick. Tear down the dividing walls of hostility. Forgive as God has forgiven you. Defend the cause of the helpless. Right the wrongs of society. Do justice. Love mercy. Walk humbly with God. Third bit of Jesus in politics is that he embodied a cross-shaped politic. And this what I just said just funnels right into this. A crucified God is at the center of our faith. And this image gives us a vision of power that is upside down from Rome's, Jerusalem's, Washington, D.C.'s, or any other place of power. Jesus' life was cross-shaped even before he went to the cross. It was a life of service and sacrifice. Jesus said at the end of Matthew 28, all authority, there's that word, power, in heaven and on earth belongs to me. That's a lot of power. 
But Philippians 2 says that Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, so he humbled himself, took the very nature of a servant, and became obedient to death on a cross. If you're wondering, that's Jesus' politics. The fancy word is cruciform. A lived-out politic in the shape of a cross and shaped by the cross. A cross-shaped politic inside of Subway. So what does that all mean? At a minimum, it means raw humility. At a minimum, it means a politic that is other-centered. A politic that seeks to love neighbor. See, for Jesus, politics wasn't just words or arguments. And this is what I love about Jesus' example. He embodied his politics. He embodied love for God and love for neighbor. He embodied laying down his life for others. His politic was lived. He didn't just teach. He didn't just talk. He took action. We can call him a prophetic activist. If we are his follower, our politic will be cruciform, shaped by his cross. It's so common today for people to take to social media or stand on some platform with a microphone in front of, I don't know, 200 people and pontificate on what they are for or more commonly rail about what they are against and who they are against. But Jesus announced the good news of his kingdom in words and in deeds. And this is what it means to be political. It's far more than a vote once every four years for who's going to be president. A cross-shaped life of service and sacrifice poured out for the sake of others. Stanley Hauerwas is an ethical and cultural theologian, and he wrote a short but powerful statement in one of his books. You can see it on the screen. All politics should be judged by the character of the people it produces. Just let that sit there for a second. All politics should be judged by the character of the people it produces. If he is right then the current state of politics in our country should be judged a colossal failure because Republicans and Democrats are mass-producing people who are angry, violent, bitter, polarizing, judgmental, and mean. So, third time up. How is our politics shaping our character? How are you being shaped by your politics? And we might not want to trust our answer to the question about us. This is one of those instances where it could be incredibly wise to ask for input from those who live with us or are closest to us. So it would go like this. Hey, Julie, how do you think the politics that I subscribe to and bomb my brain with 
are shaping my character. Then I might want to run out of the room and just say, write it down and I'll read it later. Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. His politics is cross-shaped. So again, at a minimum, his people should be growing in things like patience, kindness, forgiveness, other-centeredness, listening, and service. So we come to the last bit of Jesus' politics, and it's simply this. His politics jams up ours. If we ask Jesus, and it's a bold ask, but if we ask Jesus to, dis- to descend into our political theology and perspective and attitude, then he will show us a way of politics that is God-glorifying, life-giving, neighbor-loving, and kingdom-oriented, but this is not neat and simple and easy. In fact, the deeper Jesus descends into our politics, the more jammed up our politics will become because neither the Republican nor Democratic platform aligns completely with Jesus and his kingdom. It's the gift of getting jammed up. Do you see the goodness of this? It's the gift of being jammed up. What happens is we will vote with less certainty. That's a good thing. The gift of political confusion. The gift of political, hmm, if it goes this, I like this. If it's about that, I like that. Michael Ware is a devout Christian follower who worked in the Obama White House on faith and cultural issues. He calls himself a pro-life Democrat. He sounds jammed up to me. And that kind of jam up is inevitable for anyone who is authentically navigating politics with Jesus Christ and his kingdom squarely at the center. Ware said this in a more rattling way, so fortunately I'm quoting him here. This is not my statement. He says, and it's on the screen, I know when I walk into the voting booth there will be equally faithful people voting for the other candidate. Our aim has to be toward faithfulness, not victory. The late Tim Keller, a longtime pastor of a church in New York that was a mixture of Democrats and Republicans, said, the historical Christian positions on social issues do not fit into contemporary political alignments. What he's saying is the historical view on social issues won't always fit neatly all on this side, left, or all on this side. Right, and Keller was often accused of both sidesism. It's a charge that people like to toss around these days. So he would get accused of both sidesism, and his non anxious reply was essentially this I don't know how to keep Jesus and his kingdom at the center and cling tightly with such certainty to one political side or the other. And I realize this, at least I feel it. I mean, we're two weeks in and I'm ready to cancel the rest of it. But all of this can be rather overwhelming and incredibly confusing. I mean, there's no perfect path here. And I said this last week, I'm probably going to say it every week, I am not trying to come across like What I'm talking about is the only way to talk about it or is even the best way to talk about it. And I'm certainly not coming at this as some sort of expert on any of this. 
That is nowhere near true. I'm just simply saying that as we walk into this and we take seriously the things Jesus says, it's going to jam up the certainty in our political perspective. And I would encourage us to embrace the jam-ups. God is present. The kingdom of God has come in the person of Jesus. And Jesus is present in all this. So let the king descend and shape and transform our politics.